Well, we are so blessed, aren't we? That was awesome. Thank you. Blessed to have such an awesome Lord. Blessed to have such an awesome worship team and to be together on a Wednesday night to uh, worship our God. So, um, are you ready for Psalm 51? You sure? Okay. All right. So, what we're going to do is um, spend a few minutes at the outset here, just setting some background and context so that this psalm hopefully really comes alive for us, and it's important to understand the background so we can understand what David was going through uh, when he wrote this psalm. So, um, yes, it was written by David. It was written by David probably when he was in his mid-40s, and he was king of Israel at the time. And it's actually one of three psalms that he wrote after um, he committed some terrible sin Uh, of adultery and murder. And the complete story of what he did is recorded for us in 2 Samuel 11. But in the interest of time, let me just try to summarize it for you. We're told there that it was the springtime of the year when kings go out to war. And that was when David was supposed to be out leading his army, fighting the Canaanites, Hittites, all the different ites that were around them. And he chose to not do what God had called him to do and to stay home. And he was idle, and idleness often breeds sin. And he was walking on the roof of his palace uh, one evening, and he spied a woman bathing in her backyard, because I I guess that's how you did things then. They didn't have indoor plumbing. And um, he lusted for her. So he asked his servants, he said, go get that woman, bring her up to me. They said, we can't do that, David. Her name's Bathsheba, and she's married to one of your famous warriors, Uriah. He goes, I don't care, bring her up. So he does, he seduces her, sleeps with her, takes advantage of her, and a few days later, they find out she's pregnant. So now, rather than confess anything or just stop this downward spiral, David uh, says, you know, I'm going to invite Uriah back and let him spend some time with his wife so people will think that the baby they have came from when he made this visit home from the front. So Uriah comes back, but he's so loyal to his men that he won't go in to sleep with his wife. He actually sleeps outside the door to the bedroom. Frustrated in his plans, uh, David then comes up with another plan. He says, all right, next night I'm going to get Uriah drunk, and then I'm going to send him in to his wife. And so that's what he does. And Uriah still won't sleep with his wife. I, I can't be enjoying the pleasures of life while my men are out there dying. So then David comes up with an even more dastardly plan. He decides to kill Uriah and make it look like he would then marry this grieving widow and the child would be his and hers legitimately. And so he sends Uriah back out to the front with sealed orders to the commander to put Uriah at the front of a big charge. And as soon as the charge is at its highest fever pitch with the enemy, to pull everyone else back except Uriah And so you guess it, he gets killed in battle. And then sure enough, David shortly thereafter marries the grieving widow. And he thinks that he's gotten away with this plan, but he's committed the sins of adultery, he's committed the sin of murder, and he's committed the sin of hypocrisy before his people because he doesn't say anything about it, do anything about it for nine months until the child is born. And then in 2 Samuel 12, he gets confronted by the prophet Nathan because Nathan knows what has gone on. God had revealed that to him. And Nathan reveals David's sin to him um, in a little story. He says, David, we've got this problem in our kingdom, and David's the one who's supposed to, he's the head judge to solve all these problems. We've got this man who has thousands of sheep, very wealthy man. He lives right next door to this poor little family that only owns one sheep. And not only is it their one sheep, but it's their pet sheep. It sleeps in the house with them at night. And this man was going to throw a banquet for his friends, and instead of taking one of his thousands of sheep to slaughter for the banquet, he stole the one from the man next door and slaughtered that sheep and served it. And David, as the Scriptures record, became very angry at this man and says that his pronouncement of judgment was that the man was to repay four times what he had taken, and rabbinical law then usually said repay two times, and that the man was to be killed. So David harboring these unconfessed of, unrepented sins in his own heart is incredibly judgmental over someone else who has basically done the same thing, because Bathsheba was like Uriah's one little sheep. David was king. He could have had any woman in the kingdom he wanted. Kings back then did have lots of wives, as you know, and yet he took Uriah's one little sheep. And so Nathan looks at him and points his finger at him and says, David, you are that man. 
And David all of a sudden realized the gravity of his sin. And then he writes three psalms. He writes Psalm 32, Psalm 38, and the one we have today, Psalm 51. Psalm 32 and 38, he writes about what it was like before he repented of his sin. And he describes the anguish, the anxiety, the despair in his soul, literally leading to the point of having physical manifestations in his bones and his body because he wouldn't repent. And then Psalm 51 is his psalm of repentance. And so that's what we have uh, before us tonight. So let me just say as well, by point of application, we all need a Nathan or two in our lives. We all need someone that loves us enough that can come along and say, hey, you know, here's what God's Word says, here's what you're doing, something doesn't add up. We need people that will care about us that much so that we can turn from our sin. Now, this is a psalm of what we call repentance, and so we need to talk a little bit about what repentance is. You've probably heard that repentance is a U-turn. That is true. It is a U-turn from following yourself, following something else, to following Christ. But it's much, much deeper than that is what we're going to see tonight. It's not just sorrow. It's brokenness and sorrow that leads to a change of behavior. It's not just a change of direction, but it's actually being repulsed at what you've become, not just what you did, but what you've become. And following Daniel's lead of recommending books, um, there's a great book on this by a man named H.A. Ironside. It's about a 100-year-old book called Unless You Repent. I have about 30 copies, which we have over here, so if anybody's interested in that, afterwards come up and get one. They're free from the church, but I highly recommend it. It's the best study I've ever read that teaches us about what true biblical repentance is. And to give you a taste of what, how Ironside describes it, we have this quote up on the screen for you from his book. He says, the very first evidence of awakening grace is dissatisfaction with oneself and self-effort and a longing for deliverance from chains of sin that have bound the soul. To own frankly that I am lost and guilty is the prelude to life and peace. It is not a question of a certain depth of grief and sorrow, but simply the recognition and acknowledgement of need that lead one to turn to Christ for refuge. None can perish who put their trust in Him. His grace superabounds above all sin, and His expiatory work on the cross is so infinitely precious to God that it fully meets all our uncleanness and guilt. That really summarizes what we're going to learn tonight in this psalm. Now, repentance is something, as you can see in that quote, that, first, that must occur for us to be saved. In fact, it is part of the gospel. In Mark's version of the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, Mark records Jesus saying this in, in Mark 1, 14 and 15. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, and this was the gospel, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this is a repentance that accompanies salvation, and every single person here who's been saved went through something like that at one time. But there's a problem for a lot of us as Christians, and that is that was the only time we ever repented. And repentance is designed to be an ongoing thing that goes on in our lives as God, in His grace, slowly over time, reveals more and more sin to us, and we really miss out on something when we don't go back to the cross again. Not to be resaved, we're saved once and once for good, but to re-experience again what it's like to lay our sins before our Lord and to to receive again in our hearts that amazing forgiveness that He gives us. And so we're going to explore a little bit of that tonight. So repentance then is also something that should be an ongoing process after we're saved, and it is part of how we grow, we're going to see, and turn from the sin in our lives as God in His grace reveals it to us. So there's a repentance that accompanies salvation, there's a repentance that accompanies sanctification. Jesus in the book of Revelation even calls an entire church full of Christians to repentance in Revelation 2. So repentance is clearly for the already saved person, for the Christian. Um, so repentance, again, is necessary both to salvation and to our sanctification. As Ironside put it in his book, he says this, another great quote, no man can truly believe in Christ who does not first repent, 
nor will his repentance end when he has saving faith. The more he knows God as he goes on through the years, the deeper will that repentance become. And so here repenting before us tonight in Psalm 51 is King David, who was an Old Testament believer who was very, very close to God himself, but like us, he sinned and he failed. And he was so close to God that in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, he is referred to as a man after God's own heart, and yet he still saw his own need for repentance. So how much more so us here tonight? Now, what David did in the psalm is also very significant, particularly giving his standing as an old world king, because he was an all-powerful person. He literally could have had anybody in the kingdom killed if he wanted, which he did, and he got away with it. He didn't suffer the consequences of the legal system. He suffered a lot of other consequences for it. But he could do whatever he wanted. He had almost unlimited power. And so for a man like that to come to this point of repentance and not only repentance, but to turn it into a song that was sung in the tabernacle and later in the temple is incredibly profound that he would publicly proclaim that. So he, he knew something about his Lord in doing that that would let him do that, and we're going to see what that is tonight. It also shows us the humility that must accompany our repentance, because that's an incredible step down for an old world king to lower himself to this level and publicly declare uh, what he had done. This also reminds us that repentance is for all of us, no matter what our position in life, our age, our power, our sex, our race. Uh, we all need to repent when we sin. None of us is exempt. Now, there's three things we're going to see in this psalm that David had obviously wrestled with, and he's going to declare to us God's Word from this wrestling. Um, and they're not necessarily in this order, but we're going to see the consequences of his sin. He's going to talk about that. And we're going to grow in our understanding of what that really is. We're going to see the cause of his sin. And we'll grow in that as well. And praise God, we're going to see the cure for his sin. So the consequences, the cause, and the cure are the three main things to look for. But then there's three things we're not going to see in this psalm because they have no part of any true repentance. One of them is there is no attempt in here on David's part to justify or excuse his sin. In other words, he doesn't try to claim he's got a disease or a sickness or a habit that somehow caused him to do this. Another thing we will see conspicuously missing here is any attempt on David's part to blame someone or something else for his sin, like his parents or the tough experiences he had had in life or the culture that he grew up in. And finally, we're not going to see David offer up any good works on his part to try to appease God for his sin. He just simply and fully comes to God in full transparency and faith and asks God to forgive him. And David could do that because he knew that God could and would forgive. He knew that God was good and he knew that God was going to send a Savior who would ultimately, finally, forever solve this problem of sin. In fact, David prophesied some things about this Savior that we need to know, our Savior Jesus. David prophesied that one day this Savior would be on a cross to pay for our sin, and he wrote this in another psalm, Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18. Tell me if this doesn't sound like what happened at the cross. For dogs encompass me, a company of soldiers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. He also prophesied of Jesus in Psalm 110 and called Him Lord there and spoke of Him as the ruler who would come forth from Zion and as the one who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we'll learn more about Melchizedek later on in the book of Hebrews in the Sunday sermons. So with that background, let me pray, and then let's go through this verse by verse and see if it, the Holy Spirit just won't make it really come alive for us. Father God, we, um, we thank you that we can gather in your presence tonight, Lord. Um, we invite the presence of your Holy Spirit, Lord, into this place, into our hearts, into our minds, Lord, into our ears, Lord. Open our minds, our hearts, our minds, and, and our ears, Lord, that we might receive your truth and not just receive it, that, 
but that we might be changed by it, Lord, that it might cause us to appreciate, appreciate even more this amazing salvation we have in Jesus, and that we would be a people um, who repent, that you might use it to cause us to grow. And so we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. So let me read the first two verses, and then we'll talk about them. Verses 1 and 2 say this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So these verses deal with one of those three things I said we'd see in here. They deal with the cure for his sin. He puts that first in the psalm here, which is to have our sin totally blotted out because we have no ability to be in the presence of a holy God now or in eternity unless our sin is removed. As Charles Spurgeon said 150 years ago, you and your sins must separate or you and your God will never come together. So David knew that he needed God's mercy and that nothing else would work in order to remove his sin. And praise God, Lamentations 3.23 tells us that God's mercies are new every what? Every morning, right? And if we're honest with ourselves, as David is being here, we desperately need his mercy every day, don't we? Now, we also see the faith of David in these verses because he knew that God was good and that he could come to God and ask God for mercy, and he knew that God would then give it. He wouldn't be asking for these things if he didn't know that. And look at what these verses tell us that David knew about the measure of God's mercy. He describes it there as being abundant and as extensive as God's love. You see, David knew that no matter what he did, he could never be a bigger sinner then God was a Savior. And that's something we need to know, brothers and sisters, before we come repenting, because you're not going to want to do it unless you know those things, that he, God is a bigger Savior than any sin you and I have committed. David also knew that God would forgive him, for he asked that God would blot out his transgressions. David's actually the one who tells us in Psalm 103, verse 12, that God removes our transgressions from us as far as the east is, from the West. But look at this. David in these verses did not want just forgiveness. He also wanted cleansing from his sin. For he says here that he wanted to be washed thoroughly and cleansed. In other words, David didn't want to be this way anymore, is what he was asking for. And that's one of the marks of true repentance, that you don't want just forgiveness, but that you also want to be changed so that you don't keep sinning, particularly in whatever area of sin it was that you were repenting about. Look, any bad guy who finds himself in the back of a cop car wants forgiveness, right? But it's only so that he can be free to go do whatever he did again. But a truly repentant person has resolved that they don't want to do it again, and even more so that they don't want to be that kind of person any longer. They want to be changed. Let's read verse 3. He says here, For I, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Here we see that David doesn't try to lie about his sin or cover it up. Again, he knows that God is a good God and a forgiving God and that he can talk honestly and openly with his God about his sin. David knew the truth of what would later be written in 1 John 1.8 that we studied here probably a year ago where it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And David is the same person who wrote these words at the end of another psalm, Psalm 139, that came out of this same heart of trusting God. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, David trusted so much in the goodness of God that he could, as he did there in Psalm 139, even ask God to show him the sin inside himself that he couldn't see on his own. Because one of the things about sin, if you study it, is it blinds us. And so we often need to ask God to show us our sin because we can't even see it ourselves. Now, what often prevents us from repenting is that we often have a skewed understanding of the nature of God. 
And I think you can kind of break it into two camps where most people fall. One's way off base and the other's correct. A lot of people have a God in their mind, even people that sit in churches, who is kind of like a traffic cop with a radar gun sitting in a speed trap waiting to catch you and zap you and write you a ticket and say you did something wrong. And you may come out of a religious background that kind of trained you to, to have that kind of view of God, or maybe you don't know the Bible well enough yet, and that is your view of God. But that's not how He is presented in the Scriptures. Jesus gives us a 180-degree opposite portrayal of the Father in the account of the prodigal son in the person of what we might call the prodigal father. And as the prodigal son is off sinning, we find that the minute he turns to come back home, there is the father waiting for him at the other end of the road, presumably having looked and longing for him for a long time. And as soon as the father sees the son coming back, he doesn't even wait for the son to get back. He runs down the path, hugs the son, embraces him. And mind you, the son, the son had been feeding pigs for a living, so he probably smelled pretty bad. Hugs him, puts a robe on him, gives him a ring, and says, we're throwing a party before he even gives him a bath. That pictures our God's love for us, his desire that we would just turn and come back, and, and he'll run, he'll meet us, he'll embrace us, he'll bring us home. And that's the image of God we need to have, brothers and sisters, if we're going to ever be serious about repenting uh, to deal with our sin. You see, Romans 2.4 tells us something that we wouldn't think makes sense because it says that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's His kindness. And so, you see, when we as His children come to Him with our sin, Hebrews 4.15, which we'll study in a few weeks here, tells us that He is sitting on a throne of grace for His children, not a throne of judgment, and that we can then ask Him for help, it says in verse 16, in our time of need, and that what we will receive back from Him is mercy and grace, not judgment. So we can come to Him with our sin issues. But there's still something else that we see in verse 3, and that is even though David knew that God would forgive him and would cast his sin as far as the east is from the west, David never lost sight of the gravity and depravity of his own sin. In fact, he says in this verse that it was ever before him. Now, this is not a call to wallow in the guilt of our sin. Jesus doesn't want us to do that. Only Satan wants us to do that because then it makes us pretty useless for the Lord. Rather, this is a reminder that we should never, ever forget what we were like, and we should never, ever forget what God saved us from. Because, you see, knowing the wonder and miracle of God's grace and forgiveness on the one hand, while on the other hand, knowing the gravity and depravity of our own sin are not mutually exclusive concepts for a believer to hold on to. In fact, the more we understand this one, the gravity and the depravity of our sin, the more we will appreciate the wonder and the miracle of God's grace and forgiveness. And that's what happens when we come back to Him in repentance. We're forced to deal with both the gravity and depravity of our sin and the miracle and wonder of His grace. Let's read verse 4 because this is an amazing statement. Against you, remember what David did, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This is an astounding statement because David had abused his position and his power to take advantage of Bathsheba. He had murdered her husband and then he acted like a hypocrite for nine months before the people of Israel as he covered it all up. And yet, he had learned that the biggest problem with his sin was that it was against God. And so, without diminishing the hurt and the pain that his sin clearly caused to others, David is expressing his realization here of the true consequences of our sin, which is that at its core, sin, this is probably the most important thing in tonight's message, at its core, sin is a relational offense and that it grieves this holy God who, who has sent His Son to die and save us. And you see, sin is not just a violation of a rule somewhere. It's not just a violation even of another person. It's a violation of the rule maker, 
That's the biggest problem with it. In other words, the one who made the rule. And you know, there are actually still vestiges of this truth in our legal system, in our criminal justice system, for instance, because if a person is charged with a crime, the party who brings the charges isn't the victim. It's the government which made the rule that they broke that brings the charges. If I assault Daniel in the parking lot tonight, and I'd have to plead insanity, of course, if I did that, but, but if I did that, the case filed against me in the criminal courts would not be Daniel Hendrickson versus Rob Orr, would it? It would be the people of the state of California versus Rob Orr, because they're the ones that made the rule that says you can't, you can't do that. And so knowing and understanding this truth that sin is a relational offense is so important because it is probably the most powerful motivator God's given us to keep us out of sin. Because what happens to us as believers, even especially in a Bible-loving, Bible-believing church like we are, and praise God for that, but here's what we tend to do. We tend to trivialize our sin and look at it as just violations of some black letters on a white page in the Bible in front of you. And we forget that, no, no, it's a violation of the rule maker, the one who, who wrote those things. And when we get a grip on that, it gives us tremendous power to say no to it the next time. And I'm going to give you a little example in your Bibles. Again, you can look this up on your own to see. But in the story of David, I told you, David's temptation was very weak. He's spying at a woman way over there. He's told that he can't have her. He's all these hurdles he has to jump over to, to accomplish his sin. And he learns after the fact in Psalm 51, after wrestling with everything he wrestled with in Psalm 32 and 38, that sin is a relational offense, because he's telling us this now after going through this. In the Old Testament, we have a man who knew this truth before he went into a sin of far greater temptation than David's, and that's Joseph. And you can read the account of this in Genesis 39, where Joseph is left in charge of Potiphar's wife while Joseph is gone. And if you read it, it's a very vivid, detailed account, kind of reads like a soap opera. You know, he's a hunk, she's beautiful, she wants him. She's literally pulling at his clothes trying to t in her bedroom, trying to t tear his clothes off. And you know what Joseph does? Remember, he leaves his coat behind and runs out the door. And you know what he says in Genesis 39.9? Go look at this. He says, how can I do this against my God? He wasn't saying, how can I do this against you or Potiphar or break the rules? No, how can I do this against my God? So he knew going into a time of tremendous temptation that sin is a relational offense against God. And in that, he found the power to run out the door and leave, leave his clothes behind. So... So remember this truth, that it's a, it's, a, it's a relational offense. It'll help us a lot. Let's look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now here David is speaking of one of those other three things. He's speaking of the cause of his sin. And after acknowledging responsibility for his own sin, as he's just done, now he's acknowledging a profound truth about the cause of our sin, and that is that we're born into it. Theologically, David is recognizing the problem of what's called original sin, the sin of Adam and Eve into whom we're born and causes all of us then to be born with this sin nature. Now, David clearly, based on everything else he's said here, is not using this to dodge responsibility for his sin. Rather, he's using it to express his understanding of how deep the sin problem in him and in us actually runs and what a problem it is for us because it is so deep that it's ingrained into us. We're, we're born into it. That then means, brothers and sisters, that no amount of external effort to clean oneself up or make oneself better will ever work to cure us of this problem of sin. And so what David says here in verse 5 is really best seen as a setup for what he's going to say in the next verse. So let's look at that. The next verse, verse 6, he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. In this verse, David tells us that what God wants is not just truth or righteousness on the outside of us and how we behave or how we're living externally, but rather he wants that on the inside of us, in our hearts, in who we are. In other words, we need a new nature in order to be right before God. No amount of external goodness can ever substitute for that, and no amount of external goodness could ever create that in us. 
And this is why, even if you were blessed to be born into a good family and raised with good morals and maybe really never did anything really that wrong in your life, you still need Jesus because you still have a sin nature. This is why kids raised in a Christian home, which is a good thing, still need Jesus just as much as kids raised in a non-Christian home. This is why kids who go to a Christian school, another good thing, or maybe who are homeschooled, another good thing, need Jesus just as much as a kid who goes to public school and is never exposed to those things because all of us are born into this sin nature, and that needs to be changed. This is also why creating a Christian culture around us for us all to live in will not save us because it won't change that internal nature. Because how a person is raised cannot take away their sin nature and give them a new nature on the inside. Our sin nature can only be removed by what comes next in verse 7. And verse 7 says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So again, now David's coming back to another one of those C's, the cure for our sin. And he acknowledges that the only thing that will make us right before God is a complete purging of this internal, natural, innate nature of sin. And he alludes that the only way that this purging can take place is through something called hyssop. So we need to talk about what that means here. Let me just got a, a page backwards. Give me one second here. Um, he tells us here that this purging, first of all, must come from God because he's asking God to purge him. And he asks God to purge him, and he doesn't say he's going to purge himself of it because he knows only God can do that. And so Christianity, you see, is not a, um, a, a spiritual self-cleansing program, okay? Uh, it's much more a heart transplant operation. And let's look at what David knows about the only way that God can purge him of both the outward sin and the more deeper problem of the inward sin nature. And he says here it's by hyssop. He says, purge me by hyssop. Well, do you know what hyssop is and what it was used for? It's, this is really important to know this. Hyssop um, was very much like a like parsley in the leaves, only it would brew on a, a small tree. Uh, and that's why you actually see parsley on a Passover plate at a Seder, because it has a role in the Passover, as you'll hear in a minute. And so hyssop, imagine it like a giant parsley tree. And in the first Passover, dried hyssop, because it would absorb liquid, was used, and it's used till to this day with the, with the parsley on your plate at a Passover, to dip in the blood from the slain lamb and to paint the blood on the doorpost and the lintels of your home so that the angel of death would pass over your home and you would be spared. As time goes on, hyssop gets used in the mosaic sacrificial system. In fact, it gets used in something I think Daniel talked about this last weekend when the, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to paint blood on the mercy seat. He did it with hyssop. And listen to this. Read your Gospels. When Jesus is on the cross, guess what they use to lift the sour wine to him up on the cross with? The branch of a hyssop tree. So hyssop, all through Jewish history and culture, has had this incredible association with sacrifice, culminating in the sacrifice of Jesus. And so it is only by the sacrifice of Jesus that our sin can be paid for and that we can be purged and that we can be given a new nature. That's what David is communicating to us here. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new is come. That's part of what we get in salvation. Now, also note David's confidence in this verse as to what this purging that comes from God would do in him. He says there that it would make him whiter than snow. You see, God's provision for our sin, which is the red shed blood of Jesus, the innocent Lamb of God, is the only thing that can totally eliminate that dark, deep stain of sin in us. No amount of self-effort can ever do that. Just think of the Shakespeare play Macbeth, if any of you remember that from school, and the plaintive cry of Lady Macbeth, uh, who had uh, tried to get, was trying to wash the blood off her hands after causing the murder of King Duncan so that she could take over the throne. Remember what she kept saying? Out, 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 damn spot. She couldn't get the spot of blood off of her hands, and it tormented her literally to the point where she ultimately took her own life. 
So note also in here that David was certain that God would do this. For look at what he says. Look carefully. He says, wash me and maybe I'll be whiter than snow. Is that what it says? No, it says, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He doesn't say perhaps or maybe, maybe someday, maybe after a lot of work, I'll be whiter than snow. No, he knows it's going to happen. He knows it can happen like that at the Word of God. You see, that is faith. In fact, that is saving faith. And that is the trust and confidence that we need to place in Jesus to forgive us and save us from our sins. All right, let's look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now here David is acknowledging the joy that ultimately comes to us through repentance. Yes, we're broken, but God's not going to leave us there. He's going to bring joy to our hearts. And that joy comes from when we have been broken over our sin. We can then re-experience what I talked about earlier, the miracle and wonder of God's grace and forgiveness and mercy and salvation and restoration and reconciliation and all that's wrapped up in salvation. David also acknowledges here that sometimes it takes God breaking us in order for us to get to that point. Because notice that David actually says, let the bones which you have broken, referring to God, rejoice. Now, David probably had two things in mind here when he said this. One was probably what it was like during those nine months that he talks about in Psalm 32 and 38 when he hadn't repented, and it literally was affecting the bones of his body. It's very graphic how he describes that because he wouldn't repent. But the other was back to something Daniel talked about the first night. It was something that shepherds would often do with a wayward sheep. They had a sheep that kept straying off the path. Out of love for that sheep, out of good for that sheep, out of, out of trying to teach that sheep not to do it again, Sometimes they would actually break the sheep's leg and then set it, bind it up, and then for the next several weeks until it could heal, carry the sheep over their shoulders everywhere they went so that that sheep would understand he or she needs to stay near the shepherd and that, yes, the shepherd had broken their leg, but the shepherd loved them and did it to get their attention so they wouldn't wander again. And that's also probably what David is referring to here because he understood that God was doing this in his life. And the Bible tells us that like a good shepherd, right, the Lord disciplines those whom He loves for our own good, to keep us from straying, and to draw us to Himself. You know, there's this interesting pattern you see in parts of the Old Testament that is actually going on in our life if we'll let it. And it is this. It's a pattern of dealing with God and with sin. We have these high points. Imagine a circle in front of me here. We have these high points. We're walking with God. Everything is great up here. And the people of Israel were doing that as they... Uh, went through the wilderness for 40 years, they'd keep walking, and along would come some temptation into their life. Like the one I'll share with you is, man, we miss the garlic and the leeks from Egypt, and Moses is crazy. He's making us eat manna all the time, and we're getting really tired of manna. Um, and they start complaining, right? And so, so they're in sin now. They're complaining against God, complaining against the leader God had given them. You remember what God did in Numbers 21? He lets loose a bunch of poisonous snakes to bite them, and they all start dying. And the purpose of that was to get them to repent, and they do cry out to God for mercy and repentance. God tells Moses, take a bronze, make a serpent out of bronze, put it on a pole, lift it at the front of the camp, and if anyone's bitten and they look at that uplifted serpent, the provision of God for their sin, they will be bitten, but they won't die. Jesus later uses that as a reference to Himself in the New Testament, but in this circle, They go from walking with God, sinning, God brings some judgment on them to wake them up, and they're kind of down here, and once they get the point, I I need to repent, they come back up here, they sense restoration, and they're back to walking with God. And that should be going on in our lives all the time, because we do fall, we do sin. But here's what happens, we have to be aware of this, right at that point that God's making things happen in our lives to, to make us wake up and say, I need to repent for this, I need to turn from it, along come all the lies of the enemy and the world and our own flesh right at this point. They say things like, well, everyone else is doing that, it's okay. Well, it's not really a sin. Who says that's a sin? It's, you know, it's not a sin. It's okay to do that. And, and we, we don't go through that process of repentance then, and we never get the experience, the joy again of our salvation and that restoration. So just look for that in your own life next time you see you're going through something like this, Um, because it does apply uh, to us. 
Let's look at verse 9. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Here we see that David knows that God will blot out his iniquities. The Hebrew word for blot is like any way you could say it. It says it's abolish, cancel, erase, obliterate. It means to just totally get rid of. And that is what the blood of Jesus does to our sins. But this verse is also a reminder that when God looks at one of his children, he does not see their sin. Rather, he sees the righteousness of his son in which they are clothed. Isaiah 61.10 assures us that God has clothed us, it says there, with garments of salvation and has covered us with the robe of righteousness. And so you see, what we're learning here is that salvation is not just a subtraction of our sin. It's also the addition of the righteousness of God himself in Christ because that's what's required to actually be in his presence in heaven. Forgiveness of sin, while we don't deserve it and it's awesome and it's needed, just kind of leaves us at neutral or zero. It takes that plus the addition of Christ's righteousness to make us fit to dwell in heaven because the Bible describes it as a place where only righteousness can dwell. Verse 10, David cries out again for God to do something. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Very similar to what David did in verse 6. He acknowledges here that what God wants and what we desperately need is righteousness within us, in the core of who we are, not just righteousness in how we behave on the outside. For as David asked for here, we need God to give us a clean heart because of that sin nature problem. The hearts that we're born with are sinful and prone to sin. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. That's why, brothers and sisters, we can never trust following our hearts. That's a secular phrase, but as Christians, we should know better. I don't want to follow my my wicked, deceitful heart. It's going to lead me astray. Instead, using the truth of God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, We need to lead our hearts because our hearts desperately need leading. We don't want to follow them. It's also interesting in that David's expressing he needs a clean heart, something J. Vernon McGee shared years ago, uh, which is very humorous. But he he was just commenting on, on how he thought it was kind of odd how in churches in America we talk about salvation being inviting Jesus into our heart. Because he said, why in the world would Jesus want to live in your stinking, rotten, dirty heart? That's not where he wants to live. What he really wants to do is give you a new heart and then come and live in that heart. And that's what David is acknowledging here. Um, So David knows here that he's expressing this, that the heart of our problem as human beings is the problem of our heart. The heart of our problem is the problem of our heart. And so unless God gives us a new heart, we're not fit for fellowship with him. David understood that the problem is not just what we do, which is sin, so much as it is who we are, which is sinners, and that that needs to change or else we have a big problem. And and we hear this phrase all the time, and it's true, that God loves the sinner. God hates the sin but loves the sinner. But read Revelation. It's not sin that goes to hell. It's sinners who are going there. But there's good news. God will give us a new heart if you ask Him for one. And He promises this back in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 36, 26. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. All right, verse 11. So I got to pick up the pace here. Cast me not away from your presence and take, me not, take not your Holy Spirit from me. David here is talking about something related to the Old Testament ministry of the Spirit, which you learned about last summer in our Holy Spirit series, where in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come alongside a believer to accomplish some work for God, but could not permanently indwell them yet because Christ did not yet come to fully and finally and forever pay for sin. And so we were not holy vessels into which God could put His Holy Spirit to dwell. So the Spirit would leave. If, if you were found in sin. And that's what David's concerned about here is that the Spirit um, would leave him. But we as New Testament believers, we don't need to have that fear. Jesus assures us he'll be with us forever because sin has been, been paid for. But when we live with unrepentant sin and don't do what David's doing here, you know what happens? 
we tend to lose our sense of closeness to God, and he does talk about that here, to cast me not away from your presence. And it's not that God would ever move away from us. What happens is we move away from him in, a, in our sin. And so we need to remember, though, that he's only a prayer of repentance away. Verse 12, then, after he's gone through this whole process, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Um, so in this verse, we're reminded that um, one of the things that we aren't um, able to, to sense very well is, um, a- actually, I, I, I missed verse 12. Verse 12 is restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He's reminding us here that another thing we can't sense very well when we live with unrepentant sin is the joy of our salvation. And if you go back to that account in 2 Samuel 12, you'll see when Nathan confronts David, it says David was angry. So there was no joy in David. He lashed out in anger. In anger. Uh, and you can read Psalm 32 and 38, and you'll see his anguish and his anxiety and depression. But now after David's been broken and repentant over his sin, he's ready to reappreciate the joy of being saved and of God's goodness, mercy, and grace. So, so think so far of all the things that have come out of this process of repentance for us as believers. There's mercy. There's cleansing. There's purification. There's forgiveness. There's a right heart. And there's the joy of our salvation. And I love what Greg Laurie says about our failures as Christians when we do it this way, the way David did it here. He says, if we handle them correctly and repent over them, then our failures are not final. They are not the end of the story. What he says is we actually fail forward because we grow in our faith and we grow in our relationship with the Lord. All right, verses 13 through 15 Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. So in these verses, we see that with the renewal that comes through repentance, we are then in a position to do things for God, to teach others of His ways, to call sinners to repentance. Then we can really praise God. And you see, this reminds us that God wants our hearts right before Him, before we go out doing all kinds of stuff for Him, whether it's worshiping Him, praising Him, uh, telling others about Him. And we should all think about that before we come into this place on Sunday mornings to gather, before we go to any time when we're going to be worshiping God. It's good to examine our hearts, and it's good to ask ourselves, is my heart right? Is there something I need to confess or repent of before I come and do this? Because God's looking at our hearts, and He wants clean hearts, worshiping Him from a pure heart. Verses 16 and 17, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, this is really important, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This tells us something really sweet, that all God really wants from us in our brokenness is our hearts. He declares here that when we have sinned, God isn't looking for us to give Him anything as if we could somehow appease Him or pay Him off for our sin. All He wants us to do is come before Him with a broken heart over how we grieved Him because sin is a relational offense and with a heart that truly desires to be changed and renewed. And He accepts that sacrifice. That's what this verse tells us. In Psalm 34, 18, David declared something similar. He said, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. For you see, the appeasement that our sin requires, the debt that must be paid for it, has already been paid for by God Himself through the sacrifice of His one and only Son. You and I don't have to sacrifice ourselves to find God again. He has already sacrificed Himself for us. We can't add anything to that. He's a God, remember, whose mercies are new every morning, which means that He is a God of a thousand upon a thousand second chances. Aren't you glad He's that kind of God? I know I need a lot of second chances. All God wants, we see in these verses, is that we would give ourselves to Him, not give ourselves to our sin, and that we would live our lives for Him not live them for ourselves. Because in the end, isn't that what sin is really all about anyway, from the first sin all the way through all the other ones we've ever committed? It's about loving our sin more than we love God, or it's about living for ourselves more than we want to live for God. 
John Piper put it this way. He said, the whole process of our sanctification, this growth in Christian maturity as we grow in our faith, can be summed up as us learning to stop sinning by us learning to start loving God more. That's how you learn to not sin as much, is love God more than those things. So as we close, let's look at verse 18 and 19. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So once again, as the psalm ends, David appeals to the goodness of God to do good to his people. David's hope for this, again, rested in the character of God, that God was good. And you see, he's acknowledging here that God does want our worship of him and our service from him, but he wants it to come from a clean heart. So with this clean heart, this repentant heart, we can then, as verse 19 says, make sacrifices and offerings to God, not to atone for our sin, because God's already done that and only He can do that, but instead, as people who have trusted again in the goodness and grace of God, fully revealed to us in Christ and what He did for us on the cross, which David knew would one day come, then we make offerings and sacrifices to God for a completely different reason. And it is, I'll show you in our final verse in the New Testament that shows us this, we now make these sacrifices and these offerings in loving response to God's amazing grace. That's why we sacrifice. And in fact, living in loving response to God's grace is how I sum up the entire totality of the Christian life. That's really what it's all about, living in loving response to God's grace. And we see this in Romans 12.1 that we'll close with. Where Paul writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, and other translations render the Greek better, I think, and they say, in view of the mercies of God, or because of the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, because of the mercies of God, in response to them, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's close and pray. Father God, thank you for this amazing psalm. Thank you for all the truth that your Holy Spirit poured out into the heart of David and, Lord, into the pen through which he wrote this psalm. Lord, your truth is timeless. It's always relevant. It's always sufficient for us. Take what we've heard tonight. Use it to change us. Make us a repentant people, Lord that your spirit might be pleased to dwell here and continue to do great things in our midst. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.